Well, good morning, everybody. Nice to see you here today. Um, if you are a visitor here with us this morning, we want you to know that our our service is, is scheduled a little bit differently. We all meet together here, and we sing, and we pray, and we have communion and uh, a children's lesson. And then we have a short break where everyone can uh, go and have snacks and get caffeine for the second part uh, of our morning where we come back together and, and listen to uh, a lesson from the Word. So we're glad that you're here with us this morning. Um, this is our introduction to the morning, and if you have your Bibles, you are welcome to open up to Mark chapter 9 verses 30 through 32, which I'll be reading here for you this morning. Uh, We have been going through the story, which encourages us to read the Bible as one ongoing narrative, and it just so happens that uh, the story has put us toward the end of Jesus' life while we celebrate the beginning of his life. But I promise you it's all going to work out in the end. All right? It's all going to be okay. But as we talked about last week, Jesus... uh, as he was going and as he was teaching, he was trying to get a message across specifically to his disciples. And this is one of the messages, uh, the important message that he was trying to get out to them. From Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 32. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. This is the message that Jesus repeated over and over again, specifically to the twelve and, uh, and to his followers. And this message was that he would suffer at the hands of men, he would die, and then he would rise again. And in many ways for us, this is the core of our message, right? Everything that we teach, the gospel that we teach, is this story. That Jesus came here to live on earth, that he was arrested, that he was crucified, and that he rose again. And because Jesus rose again, fill in the blanks, right? So many things are possible because of that. We know and we love this message, but as we saw last week, it was a message that his followers simply could not wrap their minds around, no matter how many times Jesus spoke this message to them, no matter how plain and clear he made it. And as straightforward and simple as the message is to us now, I sort of wonder if it was a message then that his disciples really could understand. How were they to understand this when they believed that Jesus was the Son of God? And in just a practical sense, if they believed that he was the Son of God, then how could man kill him in the first place? It doesn't make any sense. Surely no man could do that. And we also have to realize that The idea of the Son of God dying for humanity is not a concept that is easy for people to grasp. We accept that it is an amazing act of love and forgiveness on our behalf by our God, but we cannot overlook this morning just how absurd of an idea it is and how difficult it proved to be in its execution. I mean, the gravity of what God was planning was so difficult that even Jesus himself struggled toward the end of his life to follow through. 
Toward the end of the Gospels, on the way to the cross, we get to see Jesus encourage his followers, add new meaning to a significant moment, and wrestle with what he was going to have to do, all while he moved purposely closer and closer to the cross. I don't know if you have a moment in your life that creates a lot of anxiety for you. I'm sure all of us have those kinds of moments. Mine is uh, the dentist. I do not like going to the dentist. And um, there's a long, complicated story that goes behind it. But just to really shorten it up, a little Asian dentist decided to fill several cavities without any sort of anesthesia. So she would drill until she hit a nerve, at which point I would say something because there was a drill in my mouth. And then she would stop and take a moment and then she'd drill again until she hit a nerve. And like, so I had this experience. So, um, uh, you know, I, I, I get the shakes uh, when, I have to, when I have to go to the dentist. It's not, it's not a good thing. Um, and later on, I found out that, you know how much a Novocaine shot actually costs? Seven dollars. Seven dollars, people. I'm scarred for life when for seven dollars I could have just been scarred for a year. Anyway, that's beside the point. But here's the thing. When I knew that that was coming, I would start to get physically ill as many as two days beforehand. Just because I, it had been so difficult and I knew how difficult it would be. It's hard to wrap my mind around the idea that Jesus was moving himself toward the cross. It's, it's, hard, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around this idea that he, he pushed himself and planned and even worked to get to that place. And so this morning, we have an opportunity to look at what Jesus did right before he went to that place. And it makes me wonder for us if we had some precious moments left before we knew things were coming to an end. How would we want to spend that time? What would we want to tell others? What would we struggle with? All right, it's time to dismiss our children to the children things. There goes Malia. So all, all the instructions are on the screen. We're on the screen behind me. So uh, if you would like to uh, send your kids to one of our awesome children programs, we invite you to do that. Uh, there are two uh, just very brief things I want to uh, call to your attention this morning. The first one is that Craig and Kara Lee are here with us for the first time as a married couple. And we are excited for them. Yay for Craig and Kara Lee. Kara Lee really likes a lot of attention publicly, so it's pretty awesome. Um, but we're so happy for them. And uh, the second thing is, uh, a lot of you each week tell me that you go to the website during the week and you listen to the sermons uh, sometimes one, two, or three times more. Uh, and so we are going to add something to the menu for you. And that is uh, every week uh, we are going to post a podcast. It's either going to be on Wednesday or Thursday. I don't have a cute name for it yet, but a cute name will be coming. 
uh, and a member of the church will sit down with me and we're going to talk about uh, about the previous sermon, some of the things that we've heard and learned. So you may at some point get an invitation to come and join me uh, for a podcast. My first and very special guest is Debbie Mason. So if you want to hear Debbie Mason and I talk about things, which I mean, who doesn't? Uh, that should be up uh, again by Wednesday or Thursday of this week. <clears throat> All right, so we are working our way toward uh, the end of the story in the Gospels, which we know is not really the end of the story, right? It's just kind of the beginning of the story. But we're working our way towards the end of the Gospels. And as we looked last week at kind of what was going on, we saw that there uh, are, are sort of four different groups that are all coming together at the same time and their stories are intersecting um, all over uh, what's going on with Jesus. And so Jesus is the first, the first point of view and the, the first perspective that we get. And he's, he's the main character of the gospel and, and the driving force behind this part of the story. And uh, the story is about him, but Jesus is always pointing the story back to who? To God. And so the, the story is about what God is doing through Jesus, but he's the catalyst. He's the center of this whole thing. Uh, secondly, we have his disciples. And when I say his disciples, I mean the twelve, the people that were with him all the time and following him wherever he went, uh, hearing his teachings, seeing him do all of, of the healings and things that he does. And uh, we learned about them uh, last week that they they didn't always have a, a good idea of what was really going on, uh, even though they were seeing all these things up close. There were the religious leaders, and this is the establishment who were paying close attention to Jesus, and they really did not like how different Jesus was, and in particular, how differently he was doing everything from the way they were used to doing it. And then fourthly, we had everything else, everyone else. Um, these are the people who had heard and seen some of the things that Jesus had done. And all of these groups, ha they're, they're seeing the same things happen. Okay? They're, saying, they're seeing the same things happen, but they're seeing them from different angles, with different motivations, with different eyes. And um, they have different ideas about what's happening, why it's happening, and what the outcome is going to be. So Jesus, as we saw clearly, uh, is moving toward the cross. He's going to that place where he knows he will be arrested, tortured, beaten, killed, and where he will raise again. Uh, the disciples, we find them in a general state of confusion. Um, and again, I want us to remember what I talked about in the introduction today. We shouldn't be so surprised that they are in a state of confusion. I mean, even though Jesus has spoken plainly, we see it plainly because we, have all, we already know the story of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, right? So it makes total sense to us. But to them, in what way is it supposed to make sense? It's such a difficult concept for them to wrap their minds around and they struggle with it. The religious leaders, they were kind of monitoring the situation, but as we saw again, things were kind of going from bad to worse. And... Jesus, as he was going from place to place, more people were beginning to follow him. And as more people followed him, 
the religious leaders became more concerned. And then everyone else, and this was interesting again, everyone else was actually starting to believe in Jesus. And if you remember, we end up in a scene that is almost total chaos. It, within the, 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 the Jewish people, it, it is just, it's, it's pretty much total chaos. And it's chaos for multiple reasons, Okay. It's chaos because Jesus is coming in, he's healing, he's teaching with authority, he's raised someone from the dead. He is impossible to ignore in the city of Jerusalem. He's just, he is just this force of nature walking around. And the longer the Jewish leaders wait to do something about him, the worse the problem becomes. Uh, the people in the crowds around, they know that the Jewish leaders want to kill Jesus but then the Jewish leaders are doing nothing about him, and so they start to wonder, well, maybe they're starting to believe in Jesus too. Or maybe Jesus is too much for them to handle, or these sort of things. And then the Jewish leaders come together and they say, we have to do something because if we don't, people are being drawn to Jesus, and the bigger this crowd gets, the more we are going to draw the attention of Rome. And if we draw the attention of Rome, then Rome is going to squash us like a bug. So we have to do something to stop him. And we know, don't we, what that something is. Jesus knows what that something is. But you have these four groups, and they're all heading to the same place. And it's fascinating to me. They're all heading to the same place, and yet they all understand it very differently, don't they? I mean, even though they're seeing the same things, they are experiencing it in such different ways. Now, there's more chaos to come, but before we get there, the Gospels tell us of moments that are away from the crowds and away from the conflict. These are the last private moments that Jesus shared with his disciples and with God before the mayhem of his trial and execution. These moments are not wasted by Jesus, but instead they're a vital part of the story which helps give us context to everything else we are going to see through the ends of the gospel. So, what happens in the moments that lead up to Jesus' arrest and crucifixion? Well, one of the most important things that Jesus does during this time is he marks his place within God's plan of salvation. And, you know... When you read the things, the way that Jesus teaches, the way that he explains himself, he does, he's such a great teacher. And one of the things that he always does, you know, when he's out and he sees, you know, he's teaching in the middle of nature, he'll talk about trees or birds or, you know, those are flowers or those kinds of things. He looks at what's around him and he speaks in such a way that the people that are listening to him can relate and hear what it is that he's trying to say. When he's at the well speaking to the woman that he meets there, what does he talk about? Water. Why? Because he's at a well. Right? And it makes sense for him to talk about that thing. And so Jesus does something here uh, towards the end, which, which is really important because he places himself into the, the already understood narrative of what God is doing. Okay, he places himself 
into the already understood narrative of what God was doing. So if you have your Bibles, uh, I invite you to open up to Mark chapter 14. We'll be in verse 12, verses 12 through 16. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. Okay, what is Jesus doing? He's doing what a good Jewish man or woman or child would do. He is going to do what? Observe the Passover. Okay, and so he sends his followers in to get ready. And then this is what happens during their Passover meal from Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 29. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Okay, so what is the context of everything that's happening here? This is important. Jesus is, just, is not just starting communion. All right, That's not what is going on here. It's part of what? The Passover. Okay, the Jewish people had several feasts to help them remember and connect to the work of God in their lives. And none of these feasts were as significant as the Passover feast. And the Passover feast is exactly that. It is a giant meal. Um, It includes four glasses of wine, each of which symbolize a different element of remembrance. There is a lot of food to be eaten. There's bread, there's bitter herbs, there's a lamb that's cooked uh, to be eaten. It takes several hours to finish if done right. And that doesn't even include what you would have to do to the house itself in order to make the house ready for Passover. We don't have time to talk about it this morning, but it's a fascinating thing. Um, There are things to be read and questions to be asked and answered. And the Passover was a major event for the Jewish people. And when they celebrated the Passover, what are they celebrating? All the muttering is correct. All right. They are. Here's what they're doing. They are celebrating deliverance. It is a feast that is designed to help them identify with what it was like to be in slavery in Egypt. And they are remembering how God came to them and delivered them from slavery. How once they were a lost and shapeless people, but God called them out and gave them a story. 
And this, you see, is what Jesus is tying himself to when he creates this moment. What he does resonates with the story of the Exodus from Egypt, a story of bondage, uh, deliverance, and liberation. And it's just these things that Jesus wants his disciples to understand as he ties himself to the event. The centerpiece of the Passover meal was the lamb. And the Passover lamb had two primary meanings. First of all, in the Passover itself, when it happened back in the book of Exodus, um, the Passover lamb was slaughtered and they took the blood from the lamb and they put it over the doorposts of their homes. And then when the, Passover, when the angel of death came to, to kill the firstborn, if the blood was around the door, what would the angel do? Passover, right? So the blood of the lamb was crucial to the salvation of the firstborn when the Passover first happened. And secondly, each family was to eat the lamb as part of their preparation for deliverance. We are going to be delivered immediately. We are going to eat what God has given us. We are going to leave this place and be free. It's a beautiful thing, right? It's a beautiful thing. Now, while Jesus and his followers would not have spread blood over their door frames, the elements of the meal were arranged to help them tell the story of their deliverance from Egypt. So the bitter herbs, for example, it was to remind them of the bitterness of their slavery. They would dip the herbs in a saltwater mixture so that they would taste the bitterness along with the tears of those who were in slavery. That's a powerful image, isn't it? That you're not just seeing it, but you're tasting it. Uh, They would eat a pasty sort of substance that was made from uh, nuts and fruit, which was to remind them of the mortar that was used for making bricks. And of course, they would eat the lamb whose blood allowed them to be saved. So, Jesus writes himself into that story. We cannot overstate how important this is. We cannot overstate how important it is that Jesus writes himself into that particular story. Because we don't really understand the Last Supper if we don't understand this story. As bizarre as the cross is, and it is bizarre, what is more strange? The fact that he dies or the fact that he first tells everyone to eat his body and drink his blood. We need what to understand that? We need some sort of context. We need some sort of meaning. We need something to help us understand what it is that Jesus was asking. Because the language that he uses is alarming. To eat his body and to drink his blood. Within early Christianity, when some of these messages were getting out, uh, it was feared that Christians were cannibals. Because they ate the body and drank the blood. It's pretty easy to see how they came to that conclusion. Both his body and blood speak to the violent death that Jesus was going to die. They are not peaceful images. In fact, they are disturbing. But by tying it to the Passover, Jesus, as the center of the meal, 
becomes the lamb. The lamb that has to die. The lamb whose blood will cause the angel of death to pass over. The lamb that as you eat, you eat in preparation for freedom. And it's important for another reason. God, God caused the exodus to happen. He heard the cries of his people in slavery. He had mercy on them. He sent Moses. And then he delivered his people. And by Jesus stepping into that model, what is he saying? What is he saying? That he will deliver, that God has put him in this place. That his blood will cause death to pass over. And that his body will put you on the road to liberation. It's so important that he does this because Jesus is not a new thing. And communion is not a new idea. And Jesus says, I am not some weirdo who's saying you have to change everything. I am the completion of what God is doing. Eat of my body. Drink of my blood. And you will have freedom from your sin. Amen? While the world outside was spinning toward removing Jesus from the picture, those, these pieces have been put in motion. The Jesus that we see in the final moments, particularly in the book of John, is one who, again, is very consciously moving toward what God has called him to do. And this is important, okay? Jesus is doing this, why? Yes, he loves us. But why is he doing it? Because God has told him this is what he should do. And what have we already learned about Jesus in previous weeks? He only does what the Father tells him to do or shows him or what he sees the Father doing. He is doing what the Father wants him to do. And so in the book of John, in particular, um, Jesus was very aware of all that was happening and he was readying himself for it to happen, but he wasn't concerned with himself. He was concerned with his followers. I've told you this before, and maybe this will help make more sense of it. The book of John starts out if, from John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He, he establishes from the very beginning that Jesus is powerful and a part of who God is. And I've, The way that I always say it is that in the book of John, Jesus kind of hovers two inches off the ground. Right? He is just, he's that kind of figure. He's not in the dirt. He's not, he's not doing those things. And so in John, we see this very interesting picture of him from John chapter 13, verses 1 through 5 and 12 through 17. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now, John uses some very specific terms and words that give a great deal of context. Number one, Jesus is aware of what? That the end is coming. And coming now. Number two, though, and this is John's particular slant here, He's also aware that God has put all things under whose power? His power. And that he has come from God and returning to God. So, in other words, Jesus has no question as to who he is, as to what he's doing, and as to why he's doing it. And he understands that he has the power of the fullness of God. For he is the Son of God. As John says, he was there in creation. Everything that has been made has been made through him. This is the Jesus we see in the book of John. And then, what does he do? He puts a towel around his waist, took off his outer clothing, and poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. Verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. Do they understand? Not really. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. This is a striking passage for us in the event and the tone that Jesus takes, but it gives us a good look into his mind as he is heading toward the cross. And the first and main thing which falls over the again the rest of what we see is this. What does Jesus consider himself to be? A servant of whom? Of God, yes. Of who else? Of humanity. Okay? He considers himself to be a servant of humanity. And there is a reason why he chooses to be a servant of humanity. What is that reason? He, it said it at the very beginning of the passage, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He becomes a servant because he loves those who are his. While we may marvel at the idea that the all-powerful Son of God will, would humble himself in this way, his motivation makes the humbling that much more powerful. Because Jesus is doing these things and he is moving forward because he wants to. He wants to. He's doing it because he loves and because he cares and because he follows the will of the Father. 
This same principle applies to the cross, you see. He is going to the cross to serve humanity. He is going because he loves us and he wants to love us until the end. And always a teacher, Jesus called his disciples and did really, you know, one of the best Jesus jukes ever. You know what a Jesus juke is? I've explained this to you before, if you remember. Jesus juke is when you use something spiritual or Jesus-y to put someone in their place, right? Um, and and this, is what, this is what he says. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do. What was he telling them? What I just did and what I'm going to do, you will do these things too. Why? Because you're not better than me, and I'm doing it. So you do it for others. And if Jesus was willing to do it, they are without excuse. But what does Jesus expect from those who follow him? That they will be servants of others and that they will sacrifice of themselves and they will want to do it because they love. The disciples had an important role to play uh, in, in what was still to come uh, and it was not really the kind of role that any of us would be proud of or sign up for. Jesus' road to the cross is marked with two, three things. Betrayal, desertion, and isolation. John chapter 13, again, starting in verse 21. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant, One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. By the way, this is one of my favorite uh, personal shout-outs in Scripture. Um, This is John shouting out to John. One of the disciples that Jesus loves, he's speaking about himself. Yeah, it's great. The disciple whom Jesus loved, me... Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, is the one whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Now, can you imagine? Imagine this. He's just said, I am going to show you who it is. I'm going to dip this bread in this dish. And, and what's he think? he's going to give it to this person. Can you imagine, like, what a game of hot potato that could have been? <laughs> right? Right? Everyone's like not looking at him. You know, oh, my hands don't work. I can't take it. <laughs> then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Jesus, Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Jesus had taken, Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. There's something that I want to just point to really quickly, which is an underlying thing. What's going on is confusing. 
Okay, can we need to accept that a little bit, right? Jesus says, whoever I give this bread to is going to be the one who betrays me. He gives it to Judas and then tells Judas to go. And the disciples think, oh, we must need more food. Right? This is important for us to keep in mind in order to appreciate this next little piece. John chapter 16, verses 29 through 33. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you now believe? Jesus replied, The time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things, that in me you may have peace. In this world you have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. There is something, uh, besides just the sheer brutality of the cross, there is something heartbreaking about the loneliness of the cross. Um, The isolation and the abandonment that we know he felt. And this whole lead-up with his followers reinforces those ideas. Ultimately, when Jesus is arrested and he goes to face his accusers, who is with him? No one. He is alone. He is by himself. And he knowingly went alone. And he gave bread to the one who was going to turn him over. And he looks around the room and he sees his most loyal followers, who he knows are all going to be gone. When the real trouble starts, they're all going to be gone. But here's something that's remarkable about this exchange. He told them about the abandonment so that they might have peace. He told them about the abandonment so that they might have peace. How does that give them peace? Well, let's say that you're put into a position where you're going to have to do some things you really probably don't feel qualified to do. Or you're going to be in over your head. And the person who puts you in that position knows this is true. And they say to you, you're going to be in over your head. And you're going to fail. But have peace. Does that give you peace? Well, it certainly relieves some of the pressure, doesn't it? It certainly takes something off of our shoulders when, when we know that our failure, as much as it may kind of irk us, is assumed. And so Jesus does this for them. He says, I know how this is going to go, but take peace. And then he encouraged them with these words, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The disciples are about to see the worst that the world can do. And all of their hopes and dreams are going to die with Jesus. Even though Jesus has told them something differently. And they will experience the shame of their own cowardice. 
and the knowledge that they left him to die by himself. But they don't need to be afraid because Jesus has overcome. They just don't know what that means yet. But they're going to be really glad when they do. Now, let's go to the garden as we close up today. In the book of John, um, Jesus doesn't actually pray in the garden. He, uh, he prays a lot before the garden. And um, then he goes to the garden simply because it's a known meeting place. And it's where Judas will find him. But listen to these words from John chapter 17. Starting in verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. So in the book of John, what kind of prayer does Jesus pray toward the end? What kind of prayer is it? He's praying that God's plan would come to fruition. And he's praying that people would finally understand and see everything that has been going on. Will you restore me to the place I was before? Will they see me as the Son of God, the Lord, the Creator of all these things? It's really interesting um, in this sense because in the book of John, Jesus doesn't struggle with what's coming. In fact, you read this passage and Jesus is praying with great passion and power, but there's like a sense of anticipation. Like, let's light this rocket. Let's do this. It's time. Um, And his mind was clearly focused, not on himself, but on his followers, that they would have all that they need. He, He knows he's going to the cross And he goes with perfect peace and gladness because he understands so completely what the will of God is. The other Gospels, however, take us to a very, very different place. And they take us to the garden, which is a dark, quiet, lonely experience. Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 30. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if I fall away on account of you, I never will. 
Even if all follow, I'm sorry, that makes more sense. Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch over me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, May this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them all sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, He again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Okay, first off, what did Jesus want? What did Jesus want? He wanted to do the will of God. Without question. He wanted to do the will of God. But he also wanted something else. He wanted the methodology to change. How do we know he wanted the methodology to change? He asked for it. And then what did he do? He asked again. And then what did he do? He asked a third time. So, does Jesus really want the cup to pass? Yes. He really wants the cup to pass. He does not want to do this in this way. And he asks God, is there some other way this can happen? Is there some other way this can happen? And the answer he gets is no. What are, we, what are we seeing here? In the back of your minds, is this in conflict with what we see in John? We see Jesus, the Son, struggling with what we can only call his own desire for the situation. His own will. He understood what God was doing And he wanted to do what God wanted him to do. But the difficulty of what was in front of him was not lost on him. Church, Jesus didn't think the cross was going to be easy. In fact, it scared him. It scared him. It makes me wonder, though, if we we pray to God for guidance and wisdom and purpose all the time, yes? I wonder how afraid we would be if we knew what the path was going to look like. 
I mean, we're afraid just to ask the question. If we knew what it was going to be, how would we react? Jesus showed us what has to happen when you find yourself in this kind of situation. It is the way of helplessness and abandonment. He prays for the cup to pass, but he also prays for something else. May I abandon myself to what it is that you want. Because understand, Jesus can't really half-heartedly go to the cross. He could stop it at any second, any moment, any time. He could stop it. So in order to go and do what he does, he has to abandon himself and take up completely the will of God. To do the will of God is not all that hard until it comes into conflict with what we want. Right? If we agree with God, we're all for it. If we disagree with God, well, we find ourselves in the garden. This can't be the way. Is there something else? And Jesus was in that place. He wanted to figure out something else, but he also understood he had to give up what he wanted in order to do the will of God. He had to abandon himself. And let me just say something else. The struggle that Jesus went through is real. It's not fake. And it's a struggle that we have to go through if we are going to relinquish ourselves to God. We have to struggle with the relinquishment. Because abandoning yourself is not easy. And it shouldn't be. If you are going to follow the will of God. Struggle is important because it is something that God is doing in us. We are wrestling with Him as He pushes us to a new place. It's not us resigning our will. Fine, God. Whatever. You can't save the world half-heartedly. True? The prayer of relinquishment that Jesus prays is a, is a letting go, but here's what we know from the book of John. Ultimately, why was Jesus able to let go? Because he knew that what God had planned was better than any other idea he could come up with. And therefore, when the torches are seen through the trees, when the voices start yelling, Jesus stands there in complete peace. Because he's giving up to God. But in his giving up, he is giving everything to those that he loves. And he knows that what God is doing is what needs to be done. And so he takes himself to that place.
We're going to look at that next week. At his arrest, at his crucifixion. Again, I know it's close to Christmas. It's weird. Hang with me on this one. But Jesus is taking himself there. There are so many other wheels in motion, so many other people plotting and planning. Even the closest to him think, I know how this is going to play out. But Jesus knows. Jesus knows what's going to happen, how people are going to react, how it's going to go. And he sees how difficult it is. And he goes there anyway. Because he loves those who are his and he loves them to the end. He loves them to the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful uh, for the will of your son Jesus. For God, though he struggled against what he wanted in the end, he chose still to submit himself to you. He could have chose something different. He could have opted for another path. But God, because he understood your love for us, God, because he loved us, he chose to love us to the end and to see through the plan of salvation that you had for us. So God, he became the lamb who bled and died, whose blood marks the doorposts of our life and tells death to pass over. For we belong to you. And Father, we eat his body on the road to freedom and salvation. For we know that it is only through Jesus that we can be saved. Thank you, God, for Jesus. Amen. If you have any need for prayers or encouragement this morning, you want to know this God who loves you in such a dynamic and meaningful way, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this song together.